0: Hello, and welcome to Chasing Leviathan, the podcast where we pursue big questions. My goal today is to listen and learn just a little bit more. As we head into our conversation, let me invite you to chase life's biggest questions with me, one episode at a time. All right. And uh, welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm here with Dr. Nemesh, um, Dr. Stephen Nemesh, who got his PhD from Fuller Theological Seminary and is coming out with a book in the Cambridge Elements series. Uh, this particular one is Elements and the Problem of Problems of God, and it's on orthodoxy and heresy. So that's kind of what we'll be talking about today. Uh, Dr. Nemesh, wonderful to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me. Um, Talk to us a little bit about your journey, uh, one, into uh, kind of philosophy and theology. Um, you know, you mentioned you, before we started, about you were in analytic philosophy and then you transitioned a little bit into phenomenology. Um, talk to us through that journey. And then specifically, what led you to writing on orthodoxy and heresy like this?
1: Well, I, uh, I should start a little further back. I was raised sure. in a Christian family. Um, my parents are Pentecostals, they're immigrants from Romania, and more or less my whole life until I became an adult, I attended exclusively, uh, diaspora, you know, Romanian Pentecostal churches here in America. So my parents were Christians, but they were a minority because in Romania, the majority religion is Eastern Orthodoxy. And especially in the communist era, when my parents were still in Romania, um, uh pentecostals were not just a religious minority but looked upon with suspicion um ecumenical relations you know (laughs) didn't really exist between the pentecostals and the orthodox in those days i mean even today among unless you're talking to like college educated people and uh you know people with a bit of a western education even now, you know, Orthodox and Pentecostals are suspicious of each other in Romania. So um, my parents being religious minorities uh, from a communist Eastern Orthodox country, they came to America where they became ethnic minorities. Um, And so um, my whole life basically has been the experience of not belonging where I am. Um, You know, ethnically, I'm Romanian, but Culturally, I'm American. So when I'm with my American friends, I'm the Romanian. And when I visit my Romanian friends in Romania, I'm the American. <laughs> uh, religiously, I'm also a, a minority because my background is in Pentecostalism, which although is something of a global, not quite a global majority, but it's certainly a large numbers, globally speaking. Um, at least um, in America, I would not say that Pentecostalism, a sort of traditional Pentecostalism is a majority religion. I think American mm. brought, you know, mainstream evangelicalism is a different kind of thing. Um, So there's that. Uh, And then even within my own Romanian Pentecostal context, I was in a minority position because I studied philosophy um, and because I had an interest in um, the academic study of theology and philosophy. So I've always been somebody at the edges. I've never felt like I belong where I am. I always feel like I'm on the outside. Um, Even when I did my undergraduate degree at ASU, like I said, uh, uh, like you said earlier, my background is in analytic philosophy. um, But I was a minority among the philosophy students at ASU because I was a Christian and the vast majority of the professors and the other students were not. Um, Then I did my my Ph.D. uh, in theology at Fuller Theological Seminary when my doctor father, um, Oliver Crisp, received a $2 million grant from the John Templeton Foundation to do research in analytic, uh, analytic theology. Well, before I had started my PhD, I had made a sort of a phenomenological turn in my thinking where I, I really abandoned a lot of, uh, you know, the sort of the approach of analytic philosophy and began to think about things phenomenologically and informed by the phenomenological tradition. Uh, so even then, you know, stepping into my PhD program, I was, I was a minority in terms of my method and my philosophical (laughs) commitments, um, you know, and then, uh, basically I had for a very long time been going back and forth about what is the right Christian faith? What is the right way to understand Christianity? Um, and I had been very seriously considering conversion to Eastern Orthodoxy and to Roman Catholicism for at least 10 years. Uh, even though I was a Protestant this whole time, or at least officially I was a Protestant. In my thinking, I I wasn't. I was exploring and really digging deep into these traditions. Well, various things happened. And in 2019, various things happened to me in my life. And at some point in the middle of the year in 2019, I read a book by, uh, what's his name? Philip, um, Philip Carey called The Meaning of Protestant Theology. And basically the book is a telling of Luther's evolution in his understanding of the nature of the gospel as God's promise and affirmation of human beings uh, that is accepted on faith. And that book really shifted something in my thinking. It cemented in my mind uh, that Christian faith starts with a good word about Christ. It doesn't build up to it by means of natural theology or whatever um christian faith starts with this unconditional promise given to us by god through christ that he loves us that we're his children and that he will save us Um, and that of course is contrary to the the eastern orthodox and the roman catholic paradigms even if they can find some way to interpret that formula that fits with them somehow it's contrary to it because they introduce all these other notions of mortal sin and sacramental grace and all these other things that uh, basically they just assume that the promise cannot just be taken by faith. Its effects have to be mediated to you through this institutional hierarchy of the church. And I said, no, that's not right. And so I wrote my dissertation. And the thing that I really wanted to address in the dissertation is how is it that Christians can be reading the same scriptures uh, and be convinced that this is a word that comes from God, and yet they disagree with each other about what this word means. And not only Mm -hmm. do they disagree with each other, but they're even willing to anathematize and excommunicate each other and call each other faithless toward God because they don't share the same understanding of what this text means to say. Uh, So that was basically my my dissertation, this problem of what does it mean for us to read the Bible as scripture, uh, and how does scripture relate to the tradition of the church as a source and authority for theology? Um, uh, So those are my basic questions in my dissertation, and my phenomenological method led me to the conclusion Uh, of fallibility. Um, All of our perceptions, all of our experiences, all of our judgments are fallible because they're founded on particular experiences that can also always be falsified or disconfirmed later on in the future. We don't, we can never say with certainty, here's the truth, here's what I have. Every judgment that we make is possibly mistaken. Um, And simple reflection on the facts of experience will reveal this to you. And when you realize this about yourself, uh, then it became clear to me that These ideas of orthodoxy and heresy, anathematization, and so on, these are entirely out of place in theology because theology is a fallible exercise. Um, There are no, or at least in principle, there should not be any notions of orthodoxy and heresy or anathematization, for example, in science. In normal sciences, the evidence and the facts are what guide our inquiries, and we try as best as we can to come up with a theory that makes the best sense of the data that we have. And it's true that scientists, like all people, You know, have this inherently conservative bent, and so the established theories in our time, you know, enjoy a kind of a, a kind of an antecedent um, weightiness. And if a new theory comes along, then it has to really work hard to earn a place at the table and so on. But these are just results of human psychology. It's just the fact that humans need stability in their lives. They need things to. They need something to stand on, so to speak. Um, and so they're not willing to make changes to their foundational stuff unless the evidence really presses them. And that doesn't mean that our foundational stuff is true. It just means that it's psychologically important for us and it's difficult to convince a person unless you're really overwhelming them with problem after problem with their you know, prior paradigm or whatever. Um, well, in any case, I wrote this book, Orthodoxy and Heresy, because this has been sort of like the, the, the train of thought that I've been following even before I started my PhD, but especially as I was writing my PhD, um, I was concerned with how does theology actually function? How do we, uh, how does theology as an academic and scientific enterprise function? How do these notions of orthodoxy and heresy relate to each other? How can they be justified? Is there any place for them in theology or should theology just give up on them? Uh, So this is a very long answer to a simple question. No worries. uh, But that's how I got to this point. Basically starting with my experience as a religious minority, as somebody who's always on the outsides, Um, and then bringing that into this inquiry into distinctions between orthodoxy and heresy and how to properly do theology.
0: So maybe always vaguely heretical, you know, it's kind (laughs) of...
1: I will say this, I am not as conservative a personality as a lot of my friends, and certainly not as the people that I grew up with in church. So I've always had a more open and, you know, exploratory mindset towards ideas. Like I'm willing to listen to an idea and to hear out the arguments if there are any, um, so I, you know, I, I am just not as, I suppose, dogmatic um, as other people tend to be in matters of theology. And I, th- I think anything should be open for discussion. That's because I've always been a minority, I suppose, and I've never f- belonged to the majority. When you're in the majority group, it doesn't matter to you, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because obviously everybody should think like us because, look, almost everyone thinks this way. So, you know, if you're in the minority, you have to prove yourself. I have never been in the majority, of anything. So I'm always a person who's been in the minority. I'm always a person who's felt this pressure um, that I have to somehow prove you know, what I have to say. I have to prove myself if people are gonna take me seriously. Whereas for me, I think you know, this is just entirely wrong. The truth is what matters. It doesn't matter how many people you have. You, know, you, you, know, you have a list of people that you can cite in support of an opinion. That's not gonna make the opinion true. What's gonna make the opinion true is if it corresponds to what it is that that opinion refers to. And that's not something that you determine by just appealing to authorities after authorities. That's something that you appeal or that's something that you determine by turning to that thing itself and trying to make the best sense of it that you can. Um, so I, I've always felt, I, I, I've thought about this, especially lately in the last few months, in the last half year or so. I think my, my constant life experience as a person of, on the boundaries, a person who's never total, totally fit in uh, where I was, has led me to sort of discount the importance of the group and the dispo- the importance of, uh, you know, the established consensus and so on as mm. having any kind of value for, uh, for theology.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I, uh, before we kind of get into unpacking that thought, I did want to check back. And uh, are there any particular figures in phenomenology that you follow? Because there's a couple different kind of trails you can go there. But are there any particular figures that are influential for you?
1: Well, I first began, uh, I first got interested in phenomenology by reading Robert Sokolowski's book, Introduction to Phenomenology, uh, which is a volume from the year 2000 published with Cambridge University Press. And it's very good. It's very accessible. But I would say that the one phenomenologist who has most influenced me is Michel Henry. I have published about four articles on him. Um, He... Is also a bit of an outsider in phenomenology. He doesn't fit nicely into Husserlian or Heideggerian categories. Uh, he even thinks that phenomenology itself um, fell victim to a mistake that has been made in the his, you know the tradition of Western philosophy for you know thousands of years, uh, which is he calls this mistake ontological monism, uh, which is um, the mistake of thinking that the only Uh, mode of manifestation that there is, is the manifestation of an object in the world to some subject. But he thinks, no, there is another form of manifestation, uh, which is that of a subject to itself. And he calls this life. Life is experiencing yourself. It's uh, an experience in which there is no distance between what is being experienced and who is doing the experiencing. It's a sort of a self-experience, if you want to call it that. And he thinks that you know, this, this reality of life is actually more foundational than the reality of objects appearing in the world. And I make some use of this in some of my books that I have forthcoming. Um, but he is an example of a person who really influenced me in phenomenology. And he also, like I said, was a bit of an outsider. He doesn't fit easily into phenomenological categories. Um, they tried to get him to move to the University of Paris like his whole life. They would always offer him a job, but he refused. He just wanted his small, you know, his uh, job at a smaller university where he had time to himself to write and to study and to research. Um, You know, he he spent some time in various foreign countries teaching. I think he spent some time in Japan, for example. Um, Hmm. But he is an example of another sort of outlier and, uh, you know, um, an outlying figure in phenomenology who's becoming more popular, admittedly. Um, but he's one who introduced, uh, who influenced me very much.
0: Interesting. And, uh, so I'm, does that show up in Orthodoxy and Heresy here, or that's more like theology of the manifest Christianity without metaphysics?
1: So I make a brief reference to Michel Henri in Orthodoxy and Heresy in the last chapter, but the discussion of Henri is much more robust in my book, uh, Theology of the Manifest.
0: Yeah, I can see it, which is, uh, forthcoming with, uh, Fortress academic press. Correct. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So that's, um, thank you for, thank you for kind of following up on that. Uh, tell us a little bit, you know, um, why orthodoxy and heresy and why, uh, and how did you think was the right way to approach it? How did you come to approach it the way you, you did?
1: Well, I I wanted to write about this topic. Really, I was invited to write this book. So somebody, the editor of the series, um, Problems of God series, uh, had read a paper of mine that was recently published in the Journal of Analytic Theology called Theology Without Anathemas. And he proposed that I write uh, Cambridge Element on the topic of orthodoxy and heresy. And I said, OK, I'll do it. Um, So I'm interested in this topic in general because I'm interested in how Christians relate to each other. My personal opinion is that Christians get divided about things that do not matter, and they are vastly overconfident about their opinions and especially their theological distinctives, the things that distinguish them among themselves. Um, I think that Christians tend to be too confident about those things and to make too big a deal out of them. And uh, of course, you know, the obvious response to that is, no, these are things that matter, right? It's the difference between Orthodoxy and heresy. So then I had to investigate, okay, what is this issue of orthodoxy and heresy? How should a theologian think about it? So I'm, I'm interested in this question because I'm interested in the way that Christians relate to each other and treat each other. And I think that these considerations of orthodoxy and heresy are um, especially prominent in um, what you can call the Catholic with a lowercase c tradition of Christianity, which is basically just mainstream Christianity from the, from the 100s into the Middle Ages, into the Reformation to today. Um, Of course, with the Protestant Reformation, the exact nature of Catholic Christianity was fragmented to some extent. You have certain Protestant groups that are a little more Catholic than others. Uh, Presbyterians, maybe Lutherans, especially Anglicans. They tend to be more Catholic in the sense that they are more continuous with the mainstream tradition that came before them. Whereas other groups like uh, Baptists, um, Anabaptists, especially other wings of the Radical Reformation, they tend to be less and less Catholic. Uh, because they put less weight on the tradition that developed, uh, you know, starting in the second and going all the way to basically the eighth century. They put less weight on the theological distinctives of that tradition, that mainstream, and they put more of an emphasis on the teachings of scripture or on other uh, sources of theological knowledge. So you might call those less Catholic forms of Christianity, whereas Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Anglicanism, traditional Lutheranism, or traditional Presbyterianism, these are more Catholic forms of Protestantism. Um so if you're a Catholic Christian in this sense, you are concerned about orthodoxy and heresy. That's what that's one of the distinctives of Catholic Christianity is this distinction between orthodoxy and heresy, between what is necessary to believe and what is necessary not to believe. Um, So the my complaint that started this whole discussion was that Christians are mistreating each other, but really this is because they have this Catholic notion of the importance of orthodoxy and heresy. So I wrote this book because I wanted to show how these ideas of Catholic, uh, of orthodoxy and heresy developed over time, how they are related to each other formally, and also whether a case can be made for disregarding them in the, in the pursuit of theology, in the academic study of theology.
0: Gotcha. Can, so for our listeners, can you define, uh, as you do in your book, what orthodoxy and heresy are? Yeah, so in my book, I give basically etymological
1: discussions of, you know, where these words come from. They both come from ancient Greek language. Um, orthodoxy is a compound of two Greek words, orthos and doxa. Orthos, uh, literally, it just means straight or upright, um, but then by extension, it comes to mean correct or good or appropriate or acceptable or whatever, um, doxa uh, can mean two things it can mean either an opinion that you have or that you entertain about a thing or it can mean glorifying something or glory um the first definition uh, in terms of opinion this is more common in uh, hellenistic sources um uh, for example in aristotle uh, doxa means an opinion that you form um Whereas in the Septuagint, doxa typically refers to the glory or the, uh, the, you know, the sort of the splendor of God, the glory of God, um, his impressive manifestation and experience and so on. So he talks about the glory of the Lord coming upon the tent in the, in the desert and so on. That's the word doxa. So when you put those two words together, orthodoxy can mean either correct belief or correct worship or correct glorying of God or extolling of God. Um, and if you think that believing is a part of the way that you worship God, then the two senses blend together. Um, so that's that's basically the idea behind orthodoxy. Now, heresy, that word has a more complicated um, etymological origin. Uh, it comes from a word that means to take. Uh, so you can talk, for example, about, um, you know, a warlord capturing a village or a king taking a town or whatever. You would use a word, uh, which means to take. Um, and then it comes to heresis, specifically it comes to mean like a sect, like a group. And this is in a neutral sense, just some group out of all the groups that exist in a community. So, for example, in the New Testament, we find references to the sect of the Pharisees or the sect of the Sadducees or the sect of the Nazarenes, which are the Christians and so on. Uh, this is the word heresy in, this, in the neutral sense of just a sect, a religious grouping that has, you know, some clear distinction from other religious groupings in a, in a community. Um, Now, heresy also comes from this word that means to choose. Um, So, in this sense, you can say that a sect, a heresy in the sense of a sect, is a particular way of life that a person chooses for himself. So, once you have diversity in a community, once you have, you know, Pharisees, Essenes, Sadducees, Zealots, etc. Well, not everybody is the same way. Not everybody lives the same way. Not everybody has the same principles. So, to some extent, you have to choose which of these you're going to belong to. You have to make a choice about what group you're going to belong to. Um, and this sense, heidesis, in the sense of a choice, becomes a sect, in the sense of a particular grouping that you've chosen to belong to, that you've chosen to commit yourself to. Um, then, the word heresy, or the word heidesis in Greek, also takes the negative note, uh, sense of a heresy, uh, when it be, uh, when it's basically from the, particular, from the point of view of a particular group. So let's say you commit to a particular group, okay? Once you're a part of that group, and you've committed to it, then... Other opinions or other practices or whatever become heretical for you because the group does not allow them. So heresy in the negative sense presupposes your belonging to a sect or to a heresy in the, in the uh, neutral sense. So heresy in the neutral sense just refers to a sect, a grouping. Heresy uh, in the negative sense of heresy um, presupposes your belonging to a group. Because if you don't belong to any group, nothing is a heresy for you, right? Everything is open. You make a choice. Uh, but once you do make a choice and you commit to a group, then certain things become heretical or heresy for you because the group that you belong to doesn't allow them. Um, so
0: right, because once you show something... Sorry, go ahead.
1: So basically the idea is that every heresy presupposes an orthodoxy. Okay, so heresy in the negative sense presupposes that there is such a thing as a, an orthodoxy, things that are right to believe or right to do. Um, and heresy in the negative sense only arises once you've already committed to an orthodoxy, so you cannot make a judgment about heresy in the negative sense unless you already are committed to a certain orthodoxy. And then, you know, I say in my in my book, this means that every you know one man's heresy is another man's orthodoxy because according to your group, what I believe may be wrong, but according to my group, what you believe is wrong. So your heresy is an orthodoxy for me, whereas my uh, orthodoxy is a heresy for you, and so on.
0: And these uh, and these different sects which of course, whichever one you're part of is by default considered orthodoxy, are organized by uh, that second section that you bring into that, that kind of first chapter, which is belief that, belief in, and living with. Can you talk about how that kind of forms yeah. that framework? Is it framework the right way to talk about that?
1: Well, what I'm trying to do in that section is I'm trying to show that Christianity, being a Christian means relating to things in these three different ways. Uh, so these are three different relations that are constitutive of Christian existence. One of them is belief that. Uh, basically, belief that is uh, believing that something is the case. For example, if I believe that the earth is round, or if I believe that the sky is blue, those are beliefs that. Belief that is a way of, we might say, relating to a proposition, right? I accept that a certain proposition is true, namely that the sun is in the sky, or you know, the earth is round, or whatever. Um, so that's belief that that's a sort of a propositional way of relating to things. Uh, but there's also another way of relating called belief in and belief in is not propositional. It's not totally disconnected from belief that, but it's something different. Belief in is a matter of entrusting yourself and your safety and your well-being to another person. Uh, so for example, if you go to the hospital, you believe in your doctor in the sense that you entrust yourself to him and you, you know, put your life in his hands, so to speak. And, and, you know, um, Commit yourself to him in order to save you. Just like children, for example, might believe in their parents in the sense that they trust themselves to their parents and they, uh, they go looking to their parents for safety or for help or for food or for whatever. Um, so belief in is something different from belief that. You can believe that any number of things without believing in. Uh, the classic example of this in, in the Bible is in James chapter 2, where he says, you believe that God is one. That's great. So do the demons and they shudder. Uh, So the idea is that the demons believe that God is one, uh, but they don't believe in God in the sense that they don't commit themselves to him and trust themselves uh, uh, to him to take care of them. Rather, they're in opposition to their creator. So belief in is really a matter of the orientation of the heart. It's a way of how you personally are oriented or disposed towards another person, uh, whereas belief that is a matter of whether or not you accept a certain proposition as true. And then finally, there's another relation that I call living with. And this is just a matter of sharing your life with people. So, for example, I'm married and I have a child. um, And I live with my wife and with my child. So that means that I I live with them. I share my life with them. Um, I open myself up to them. I allow them to have an influence on me. I try to influence them. Uh, We have a sort of a back and forth. There are people that I don't live with, uh, not just in the sense that I don't live in the same roof as them, but also but I don't communicate with them. I don't share my life with them at all. That could be because I don't know them, I've never heard of them before, or it could be because we're not friends or we don't get along, or I think it's better for me not to interact with that person and, and so on. So living with is another way of relating uh, that is not really propositional. It's, 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 again, a different way of sort of disposing uh, yourself uh, towards other persons. And this is, in, in this case, it's a matter of sharing your life with another person and allowing their life to mix and blend with yours, uh, to sort of have a common life to some extent. So I say in the book that these three relations are essential to what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian means believing that certain things are the case. It means believing in certain persons. And it also means believe, or living with certain persons. Um, for example, if you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, if you're a Christian, you believe in him in the sense that you entrust yourself over to him and you trust in him to take care of your life. And you live with other Christians in the sense that you open yourself up to them, you consider yourselves a part of a common group, you allow them to influence your life, you seek to influence theirs, you, you don't you know, close yourself off to all other Christians, but you rather join with them and you live with them. Um, so these are three different ways of relating to things that I, I say are constitutive of, of Christian life.
0: Gotcha. Uh, so when you talk about you know, for instance, living with, it's better to not interact with that person. You don't live with that person. Is that kind of when we talk about uh, anathematization, is that what we're talking about there? That sort of idea of like cutting that person off?
1: Yeah, this is a very good question. So living with really, strictly speaking, is an ambiguous notion because you can have positive living with and negative living with you know, for example, friends are people that you live with positively because you share your life with them and you think that your life is better for doing that. Uh, Enemies are people that you live with in a sense, but it's a sort of a negative living with because you think your life would be better without them in it, but here they are and you you sort of can't (laughs) avoid having them in your life, you know. So um, living with can be positive and negative. One way of understanding the anathema, the function of the anathema in theology, is that it's basically a declaration that Christians are no longer to live with these individuals or persons who have these beliefs, right? So if you believe that this and this is the case, then you're anathema. Uh, that means that you're cut off. You no longer are a part of the common shared life of the church. Uh, we no longer live with you. You're a heretic. You're on the outside. Um, at, at the very least, you're on the outside of the church. You might also be on the outside for God, too. It could be that God doesn't share his life with you anymore, but people get sort of, you know, um, less certain about that one. At the very least, an anathema is a clear cutting off of a person from the life of a church. So an anathema is a way of refusing to live with a person who, you know, has the wrong opinion or does the wrong thing or whatever.
0: How does that interact with uh, the different spheres? Uh, Do you see that this is primarily theological or how does this work within, um, when it comes to social things, when it comes to political things? um, How far does that extend? Is that something that depends on the tradition?
1: Well, it will really depend on the tradition. I mean, for example, Roman Catholics will say that people can be anathematized for their beliefs. They can also be anathematized for their actions. Uh, They can be anathematized for their theological beliefs or for their political beliefs insofar as these are, you know, ethically contrary to the teachings of the church. So a person can be anathematized for any number of things. Um, it, It really depends on the individual case, but... People can be anathematized for reasons of theology, or reasons of politics, or reasons of ethics, or reasons of their own personal life and their actions, and so on.
0: Gotcha. And then um, that kind of leads us into, in some ways, I think the uh, philosophically more treacherous ground of uh, uh, talk to talk to us about truth. And I think that this is important before I ask this question because I'm looking, you know, I, I looked at your website and. Uh, for you, your your project, if I understand it correctly, is about the future of Protestant theology and what you call a post-Catholic mentality, um, in which truth rather than authority is the sole criterion for Christian theological inquiry. And that idea is really fascinating to me because it doesn't seem immediately apparent that you can separate truth and authority. So I'm I'm really curious uh, how you uh, handle. One, why that distinction? And where, like, what do you consider truth to be? No pressure, right? Like, the, not, you know, what is truth?
1: <laughs> yeah, like Pilate's question. Right. Um, well, uh, I think that Aristotle gave a very good definition of truth. He says, uh, truth is to say of what is, that it is, and of what is not, that it is not. Uh, in other words, truth is when the way that you're thinking or talking about a thing is adequate to the way that that thing is. Um, so, uh, if I say, for example, that my glass is empty, uh, then that statement is true if the glass is empty. If the glass isn't empty, then it's not true. Uh, if I say that my wife is in the other room, then that statement is true if she's in the other room and if she's not in the other room, then it's not true. So truth is a relation that obtains between an opinion, and a thing in the world. The the opinion refers to the thing, and it characterizes it in a certain way, and the opinion is true if the thing is that way uh, in which it's being characterized. Now, what's interesting about this is that truth, because truth is defined with reference to the thing itself, and not with reference to the opinion of the thing, that's how it's possible for there to be falsehood. Um, Only if so we can put it in these terms, only if opinion and being or speech and reality are distinct spheres that don't have to be correlated with one another, only then can you have falsehood. Because if everything always was the way that you think about it, then you could never be wrong about anything, right? If everything always was the way that you're talking about it, uh, then none of your speech would be false. It would all be true. But I take it that that's, that's clearly um, uh, clearly possible for us to be wrong about things. I think we have experiences. We've, you know, everyone realizes moments when they were wrong about things. Um, so this possibility of falsehood is interesting because it shows that speech and being, or thought and reality, opinion and reality, however you want to put it, these are two spheres that are distinct. They're independent of each other, um, and they don't have to correlate. So the way that I talk about things doesn't have to be the way that they are. And the way that things are doesn't have to map on to the way that I'm talking about them. That means that if I want to know what the truth is, then I have to try to confirm my opinions about things in an experience, because experience is the way that I get access to the things that I think about. If I want to know if my wife is in the other room, then I've got to go there and look. If I want to know if the glass is full, then I've got to look at it and and test it and see it. If I want to know, for example, Uh, what Paul's teaching about the doctrine of justification is, then I've got to read what he wrote about it, right? And make various other corollary assumptions about, you know, the truthfulness of his reports and his writings and so on. Um, so basically truth is, uh, truth is this relation that obtains between an opinion and the thing itself to which the opinion refers. And the thing that makes the opinion true, importantly, is that thing. So that means that authority has nothing to do with truth. Uh, You can have an opinion that is endorsed by all the you know um predominant authorities in a certain field at a time that doesn't make that opinion true and that we have examples of that in the history of science for example the geocentric model was affirmed by all the relevant authorities in physical science in the middle ages but eventually people gave it up because they realized no actually there's a better theory that makes better sense of the facts that we have at our disposal um, so even though at one point in history, everybody believed that the sun goes around the earth and they had good reasons for doing so because their evidence led them to this conclusion and their theory made sense of the evidence, it was still false. So you cannot prove an opinion true by appealing to authority. Strictly speaking, that's a non sequitur. Because what makes it an opinion true is the thing itself to which the opinion refers and not the person um, that endorses the opinion or that suggests it or proposes it to other people. Uh, so this is why I think, because in theology, truth and authority are blended together. I think this is a sickness and a cancer in theology, and I think that this is, um, this is why theology needs to give up these notions of orthodoxy and heresy, because again, the judgment of orthodoxy or heresy is determined by appeal to the authorities of a group. If you were, tried, if you were to try to prove opinions as orthodox or heretical strictly because they're true or false, without any reference to community authority or or anything like that. Well, it's very hard to do that. And that's, again, because we're fallible. We make mistakes. Um, Our experience of things is very limited. It's impossible for us to say with definitive certainty that this or that is the case. And so because we do not have an infallible grasp of the truth, all of our judgments are tentative, all of our judgments are revisable, and there's not really a point in declaring certain things orthodox and other things heretical, anathematizing people, kicking them out of our group, like, hey, we can be wrong. but what happened in the history of the Catholic tradition was that our natural inability to prove things true, our natural limitations as regards our possibilities of knowing, were um, basically, um, they made up for that by uh, introducing this notion of an infallible institutional authority. So now it doesn't matter that I can prove it to you or not. Now it doesn't matter what my arguments are. Uh, if the church has spoken, then it's true. right? And it's the mere fact that the church has pronounced a certain thing in the appropriate conditions that guarantees for us that that opinion is true uh, and not our ability to prove it, not even the church's ability to prove it, but just the fact that the church has spoken under certain, you know, well-defined conditions that guarantees the truth of the proposition. So basically what happened in the history of orthodoxy and heresy and Christian theology is that human inability to achieve knowledge was counteracted by this proposed, you know, purported infallibility of institutional authorities. Um, but again, I think that this is just, this is faithless to the notion of truth. An opinion is true if the thing to which it refers is that way. Uh, If I believe something, then my opinion is true only if the thing that I'm believing it about is the way that I believe it to be. And it doesn't matter that I believe it. It doesn't matter that the president believes it or the Pope or the Bishop of Rome or the Bishop of Constantinople or whoever. What matters is the thing itself. And so when in the history of Christian theology, people... Recognize that the things themselves that they were talking about were inaccessible and hard to get at. Well, they had to find something else to point at in order to prove their opinion. And so they pointed to the institutional authorities of their church. They pointed to the purported apostolic succession and all these other, basically they couldn't get at the things themselves. And so they, they took what they could that was at, that was at their disposal. um, And they said, okay, these are the signs that we have the truth. Um, And I think that that's just wrong. It's just, it's, it's a non sequitur. It's fundamentally an invalid inference. Uh, you're inferring from something that has nothing to do with the truth to the truth of your opinion. And I think that's, you recognize it as a logical fallacy when you take philosophy 101 your freshman year. Uh, but in theology, this sort of thing is done all the time. And it was done all the time in history. And people were killed for this. I mean, you imagine being burnt at the stake because the people who burn you at the stake, you know, <laughs> justify their opinion by means of logical fallacies. I think this is insane. I think it's a sin. I think God will judge those people. But that's the way it happened in history. That's just how things turned out.
0: Uh, and maybe I'm completely barking up the wrong tree here, but when you talk about the thing in itself, uh, does that relate, uh, in any way to the truth? Um, you talk about life as the subject to itself with Henri. Um, how does the thing in itself relate to the subject relating to itself? So notice I did not
1: say the thing in itself. I said the thing itself. Um, so Uh, What I I was trying to say is that if I have an opinion about dogs, then whether or not my opinion is true depends on dogs. If I have an opinion about mathematics, then whether or not my opinion is true depends on mathematics. If I have an opinion about the teaching of Paul in the letter of Romans, then whether or not my opinion is true depends on the teaching of Paul in the letter to the Romans. Um, So what I meant to say there is that basically an opinion refers to something uh, and truth is accomplished when that reference, you know, has a certain quality of being adequate. Uh, If I say, for example, that the walls are white, but actually they're red, then my opinion is not true. But if they are white, and I say that they're white, then I've got a true opinion. Uh, So that's what I mean to say the thing itself, the thing that I'm referring to, that's what makes my opinion to be true or false. And that should be the only consideration in determining the truth of my opinion.
0: Yeah, I'm tracking with that part. I was wondering how truth uh, relates to Henri's subject to itself, the the idea of that thing that he calls life, um, and I think some of it is just I don't fully understand that concept. But it mm-hmm. seems like uh, as he's talking about phenomenology, that uh, you know, people trying to access things through phenomenology, and that seems to be um, not the main goal of phenomenology. It seems to be the subject to itself. Does, does a, a form of truth grow out of that? Well, Michel Henry would say that
1: um, truth is not really uh, accessible in the domain of the world uh, where we are related to objects that are distinct from us. But the truth is accessible in life because there there is no distance. Uh, there's, no, there's no chasm to be crossed. Right. There's no distance to be bridged. I am experiencing myself. Uh, And so, for example, you know, you think of the famous example uh, from Rene Descartes in the History of Philosophy, I think, therefore I am. Um, Michel Henry would say that here Descartes has accomplished the truth because the fact of his thinking is self-evident to him because he is experiencing himself. He is, he has got the truth because he is experiencing himself. There is not like an object and a subject and then some sort of hermeneutical bridge to, to bring them together. There is just a thing experiencing itself. And so there you have truth in a much more certain and stable way than in the case of, you know, opinions about things outside of yourself because there's no distance to be, got, uh, uh, to be bridged. Uh, I don't have to make a judgment. I don't have to guess. I don't have to make use of sensory organs or other such things that, you know, there's nothing that needs to connect me to my object in the case of life. When I suffer, I know that I suffer. When I'm happy, I know that I'm happy. When I'm thinking, I know that I'm thinking. When I see, I know that I see. So my self-experience is really the most certain and the truest knowledge that I have. Uh, Whereas my knowledge of all things outside of myself is going to be hermeneutically mediated, it's going to be uncertain, it's going to be subject to revisions, it's going to be based on representations um, that appear to me in my experience and that could be inadequate to the object and so on.
0: Gotcha. Uh, so as I'm listening to you talk about, uh, is there an idea of a fallible authority that can still use notions of heresy and orthodoxy, or is, do you think that there's only infallible authority or no authority at all? Well, I don't I don't really see the I mean, to some
1: extent, authority is necessary if you're going to have an organized group that persists over time. So if if everybody, you know, if you're going to have a group that is to persist over time, uh, presumably there has to be at least one person, if not more people in that group uh, who take the lead and everybody else follows. It's very hard to have perfectly consensual sort of, you know, synchronic efforts uh, synchronized efforts that persist for very long. That's very hard to accomplish. It's much easier if you just have one guy leading and the other guy, uh, following. Um, you can say that the person leading is fallible and, you know, uh, but to the extent that you admit his fallibility, to that extent, his authority is undermined because every judgment that he makes, every time he exercises his authority, he opens himself up to critique. Now, you may judge for the sake of the persistence of the group. It is better not to question him on this, right? Just so that we don't have a problem every time he says something, uh, we'll just go along with him, even if we admit that he could be mistaken. We'll just go along with it so that we don't, you know, so that the group can actually get something done. Um, But that doesn't mean that he's right in what he says. That doesn't mean that the the decisions that he's making are actually right. So I agree that for the functionality of a group, authority has to be taken, an authority has to be taken as if it were infallible. But that doesn't make that person actually infallible. I could, he could be mistaken, right? It's true that we have to treat him as if he's not mistaken in order for this group to actually function and survive. Um, but he still could be mistaken. So the infallibility of an authority is a, is a kind of a functional necessity. It's a kind of a practical necessity for the persistence of a group. But it has nothing to do with truth. And it seems to me that at least in this academic study of theology, what matters is the truth. Um, And in that case, the authority of a person has nothing to do with the truth. All that matters is the thing itself that we're talking about. So I would distinguish between two functions of authority. The practical function of authority is to allow a project to survive, right? You have somebody who's making the, you know, who's calling the shots for everybody else and everybody else falls into line so that the group can persist. That's a functional uh, notion of authority. But epistemically speaking authority is irrelevant right because even if we need this guy in order for the group to survive he could still be wrong that's not what would make him right right the group you know it's true that the group might dissolve if we don't listen to him anymore but he could still be wrong even though the group will dissolve so i think that these are just two different things they're two different ideas
0: got you and how would you address uh ideas of like uh taking certain things on uh authority in order to push further epistemically if that makes sense, like, obviously, like, I, I don't know everything about science, but I'm, or, you know, for the work that I've done in philosophy, I don't know even everything in my field, but I, I've learned a few things. And I, I take some things on authority, some things I've proved to myself. How does that function in this, in this, uh, th- this process?
1: So if you want to engage in a sort of a conditional, like, um research program if you want to call it that you know here these guys have these ideas let's see if we take these ideas for granted where, where can we go with them that's one thing but if you want to know that's not going to be enough for you <laughs> because you can produ- like you can just take for granted what certain people say and then say okay if we take these ideas for granted here are some other things that we can say that's all fine. But at the end of the day, the, the result that you produce is a conditional one because the validity of your end result is dependent upon the validity of your prior assumptions. And you just took those for granted. You didn't investigate them yourself. If you want to know, if you don't want just to produce, but also to know, uh, well, again, knowledge, I think, is a kind of a perception of the truth. It's a matter of seeing that my opinion corresponds or conforms to the thing itself to which my opinion refers. And in that case, I can't take it on authority. I have to search for myself. I have to accomplish for myself this awareness of the adequacy of my opinion to the thing itself. Um, And so uh, if I want to know, then the appeal to authority is not going to be enough for me. Um, The appeal to authority can be enough for me if I want to further along some research program or some tradition, right? I can just take for granted what it says and then see where I can go with it. Uh, But that's not the same thing as knowing. Knowing means setting all appeal to authority aside and striving to see for myself. Um, so I think that you can do that if what you want to do is to see where a tradition will go, but if you want to know, you cannot do that. You cannot just take what another person says for granted. You have to see for yourself.
0: Gotcha. So, um, I want to make sure to give you enough time to talk through your conclusions. And, (laughs) uh, I, I know we're running close up to our time here and, um, So talk to me a little bit, you know, you you have as your conclusion theology without anathemas. So what uh, what would this look like? What would this program look like? Well, um, the
1: theology without anathemas. First of all, what it looks like is that we don't anathematize each other. (laughs) Um, You have your opinions and I have mine. Maybe we disagree. But if we do disagree, I am not going to send you to hell for having the wrong opinion. I am just going to say, okay, why do you think that? Here's why I think my view is correct. Where do we differ? Where are we the same? Um, Have you considered this argument? Have I considered that argument? Um, If at the end of the day we can't convince each other, we'll say, all right, well, you know what? Um, Doesn't seem like we can convince each other. There's some kind of some deep-seated things here. We'll have to think about them again another time. You can go your way. You can continue doing what you're doing. I can continue doing what I'm doing. You know, maybe we can talk about it again later. Um, You continue to do... Theological inquiry as you please you study what you want you see where you know the trail of investigation leads you Uh, But you don't draw hard lines between who's in and who's out Now why is that? Because I think another part of theology without anathemas is this realization that we are all oriented towards a common object So take for example again the the example of uh, natural science Einstein, Aristotle, Ptolemy, Newton, they did not all believe the same things. They did not have the same conceptions of reality, but they were still talking about the same thing. They were talking about nature. They were talking about this world that is manifest to us in experience. So even though they didn't have the same opinions, they still had the same shared orientation toward the world of nature, and they wanted to learn from that world of nature. Uh, They wanted to be its students, so to speak, and to try to understand it better. Well, that, I think, is what we are trying to do as Christians. I think at the end of the day, what makes a person a Christian is that he or she wants to be a student of Jesus. Jesus is a teacher. He has something that he has to say for us. He has something that he wants to teach us. A Christian is a person who says, okay, I'm going to be your student. I want to learn from you what I ought to do. Now, you and I can both be students in the same classroom and not understand the teacher to be saying the same thing. That much is obvious. Just like Newton and Aristotle and Ptolemy and and Einstein can all be students of nature, so to speak, and yet not understand nature to be saying the same thing in the sense that they don't have the same theories about nature. But that doesn't make them any less scientists. They're still a part of this class of people that we call scientists who are basically students of nature. So also, if you want to learn from Jesus and I want to learn from Jesus, we may not understand him in the same way, but we're both his students. Um, And that makes us both Christians. So there's no reason for me to say you are on the outside because you don't understand him like I do. That wouldn't make you on the outside. Um... What puts you on the inside is that you want to learn from Jesus. And that's what I want to do also. So fundamentally, what makes us to be Christians is not our particular beliefs that, if you want to call it that, but our belief in Christ. It's the fact that we entrust ourselves over to him as students that makes us to be Christians. And we can do that even though we don't have the same beliefs that with respect to what he means to be teaching us. And then finally, the, the presumption in all of this, the, the assumption is that Christ himself accepts us unconditionally Um, and this is again I I think I referenced earlier that book by Philip Carey the notion Mm -hmm. of the gospel in Luther as an unconditional promise of God I understand the teaching of the Bible and the New Testament especially very simple God loves us he is our father Christ is his son he also loves us he means to teach us how to live as God's children in the world he died for our sins to make atonement for our sins so that God doesn't hold anything against us any longer and he calls all people to be reconciled with God that's it that's what the New Testament means to teach. Now, this means that as far as God is concerned, he doesn't hold anything against us. All that he wants from us is for us to turn towards him and to learn from him. And as soon as we do that turning, as soon as we are oriented toward God through Christ and we want to learn from him what it means to be children of God in the world, then we are Christians. And that is, it's possible to have that orientation um, irrespective of our particular dogmatic beliefs, Right? We don't have to believe any, anything in particular about the various controverted issues in theology in order to have that orientation towards Christ. Um, and the starting point of the orientation is God's acceptance of us. Right? So we don't have to earn our way into God's good favor through our orthodoxy or through our doctrinal correctness or whatever. We start with God's favor. That's the presumption. Um, just like, for example, Einstein, Newton, Ptolemy, Aristotle... They didn't have to earn nature's favor somehow for nature to show itself and to take them on as students. Nature is always doing its thing. This world is big enough for all of us. And even if we have different opinions about how the world functions, this world is permitting of all of us. It lets us be here and it lets us learn from it. Well, that's a little bit about how I think about God. He is there. He accepts us. He has brought us into life. He is revealing himself to us. He accepts us all as his students. There's world enough in, in God's classroom, so to speak, for all of us. And what makes us to be students in that classroom is the fact that we respond to God's willingness to have us by orienting ourselves towards him and wanting to learn from him. Uh, so that's what I think a theology with, uh, without anathemas is about. Uh, in the first place, we don't kick each other out and call each other names and send each other to hell for disagreeing. Um, In the second place, that's because the more fundamental thing that we all have in common, what makes us all to be Christians, is our shared orientation towards Christ as prospective students. We want to learn from him. And I can want to learn from Christ even if I don't understand him in the same way that you do. So that's what makes both of us Christians, even though we disagree. And the basis for our wanting to learn from Christ is Christ's own message that God accepts us as our father. Uh, So we start with God's favor. We're not trying to earn it. We're not in danger of losing it. Uh, we can reject it. Certainly, I can turn away from. it. I can say, you know what, I don't care anymore. So we can certainly turn away from God's favor, but we can't lose it because He gives it to us unconditionally. He loves us, and He wants us, and He accepts us. Um, so these are the the ways of doing. This is sort of the theoretical background of a theology without anathemas. And it seems to me obvious that there is no place for notions of orthodoxy and heresy in this kind of scheme. First of all, because knowledge is fallible, because we can make mistakes about what we believe, and so we may need to. Be corrected over time. In the second place, because there is nobody with the authority to make that judgment, uh, I have a book that's going to be coming out, it could be coming out at the end of this year, if not next year, called Theological Authority in the Church. And in that book, I argue that nobody has authority in the church of an unconditional or infallible nature except Christ and God. Everybody else, in principle, can only exercise theological authority by appealing to the words of Christ or to the works of God in him. And that appeal is always going to be fallible and, you know, uh, in principle reversible and and subject to critique. So all human beings, except for Christ, are on an equal plane. We are all trying to learn from Christ. None of us has authority over the other to determine you cannot or you can believe that. Christ alone determines those things. Um, so there is nobody with the authority to pronounce an anathema um, there is no basis for pronouncing an anathema because our knowledge is fallible. Um, and, you know, that, that's basically what I would say about all that. Um, this is, this, you know, it wasn't a very organized answer, I'll admit, but these no, are sort oh, of no. broad strokes what theology without anathemas looks like.
0: Gotcha. Uh, are there any beliefs that concerning Jesus that affect living with?
1: Well, yeah, you obviously have to think that Jesus means to do good to you. <laughs> So if you think that Jesus is going to harm you and he's going to destroy you, then why would you want to live with uh, Christians in the first place? Or why would Christians want to live with you? Um, because then it seems like, you know, like, why are you even here? Um, notice, I, I think that fundamentally the sorts of things that would make you just not to be a Christian at all um, have to do with your, the orientation of your heart towards Christ. So if you don't believe that, what Christ teaches is true why would you want to learn from him why would you be a Christian in the first place right maybe you want yeah. to just continue going to church because your friends go there okay that's fine but you're going to church as a as a purely social act it's not a Christian act for you any longer maybe the people at your church can say all right if you just want to come and hang out with us here whatever maybe they'll say you know what we would prefer if you not be here because it's weird That's a decision that they have to make on their own, but that's no longer a Christian act because you're not doing it out of a, out of a concern to be a student of Christ. It's just a purely social act for you at that point.
0: Gotcha. So if you have someone who let's say is sincere and is following Jesus, are they, and they have beliefs that, uh, could that, uh, could any of those beliefs that, that they have that are different from yours affect the living with between you?
1: Yeah, obviously, because this happens all the time. People, for example, disagree about the relationship between divine providence and free will. And they get so heated and so worked up in these discussions that they can't even stand to go to church with each other anymore, because that particular belief affects their preaching and affects their evangelization style, it affects their spiritual life, and, you know, it it just gets to the point where they can't stand to be in the same church anymore, so they have to go their separate ways. Or some people believe that the bread and the wine of the Eucharistic meal really are Christ's body and blood. And so they think that for whatever reason, if you don't believe this, uh, then you're putting yourself in danger when you take communion. So they don't let you do it. Or they might think that the bread and wine of the Eucharistic meal are not really Christ's body and blood. They're just bread and wine. And so they might be open to having other people come and eat with them too, because they're symbols. It's a symbolic sort of ceremonial, uh, you know, symbolism that's involved there. Um, But so you can see how different beliefs that will affect the situation of living with. Now, whether they do so rightly or not is another matter. But it's clear that people can have different differences in beliefs that, which will translate into changes in their willingness to live with each other.
0: And do you think any of those um, are rightly messing with living with? Like, like they should stop living with, or those like? So, for instance, as like a crazy example, but we do have examples from church history. You have Origin uh emasculating himself because he wants to stop lust and then realizing it was a mistake later or i heard about an unfortunate example of a a young man who had come to uh christ and he read the passage about it's better to tear out your eyeball and he blinded himself because he was struggling with lust um is that is someone who persisted in that and continued to teach that uh which would be a belief that I think, if I understand correctly, would that affect living with? Like, rightly so. Yeah. Um, when you make judgments of the sort... Excuse me. I'm sorry, I'm getting over uh, uh, some kind of
1: sickness. Nope. Um, when you make judgments of the sort, you are always assuming that the thing in question is clear. Right. You wouldn't mm-hmm. kick someone out of your community over something that's obscure unless you had other motives for doing so. Um, so the the decision to exclude a person from the community, to refuse to live with that person anymore, um, presupposes a clear basis. It, it presupposes that you're making this, dis- like the rules are clear. Christ's teaching on this is very clear. You are disrupting, you know, the the order and the unity of the church. you got to go. Right. Um, are things clear? Yeah, I think that some things are clear. I think, for example, the rule about plucking your eye and, you know, tearing off your hand. I think those are obviously exaggerations. And I think that you have to be, there has to be something wrong with you. You have to have a sort of a pathological, um, you know, guilt over sexual temptation or something like that to actually take those commands literally. Um, would you kick a person out of the community um, I mean, if a person really thought that he had to tear off his right arm, it doesn't seem to me that my first preoccupation would be to kick him out. Uh, my first preoccupation would be to try to set him straight um, until he actually does it. I mean, I'm sure that after he would do it, he would learn his lesson and he quickly realized he made a horrible mistake. Um, but I would, I would very clearly like, I, would, I think my first inclination would be, I have to clarify in this person's mind a, a, a few things. Uh, rather than kicking him out. I mean, a person can have whatever weird opinions he wants. I don't think that the, the mere holding of an opinion is a reason to kick out by, that, by itself. I think the reason to kick a person out of the community is because they disrupt the community life in a certain way. So for example, if somebody sat up and started saying, Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, he was just some guy, he was a charlatan, he was a magician, he died... Um, he's not resurrected. He's never coming back. His teachings are all false. Would you kick a person out of your community for saying that stuff? Well, yeah, uh, because <laughs> at that point, they're no longer trying to be a student of Christ, right? And they're no longer open to being questioned by anyone. They're no longer open to, to dialogue. They've just rejected Christ. So at that point, why are you even here at, a, at all, right? Like, you have no reason to be here. Um, but if a person believed that they should cut off their arm, I mean, I would not kick that person out of the community. I would try to help them. I would try to get them to understand that they are reading this wrong. They're, they're misinterpreting what Christ means to teach. So I, I think that the, at least these examples that you give don't call to my mind for an excommunication. They call for an, an intervention. If, if you want to call it that. Gotcha.
0: Yeah, that that's helpful. Um, so one, thank you so much for, for coming on Dr. Nimish. Um, and then also, is there one, uh, if you could leave our audience with one takeaway, what would it be?
1: The takeaway is, um, you know, this, uh, this famous line, it's supposedly it's Aristotle. It's, it's not, it's not found in Aristotle, but it's a sort <laughs> of a medieval paraphrase of a, of an idea that's in Aristotle. Um, uh, magi samica veritas, which in Latin means truth is a greater friend. So the line goes that Plato is a friend, but truth is a greater friend. Mm. Um, you know, that's, that's an example of the relationship between authority or community and truth. Right, Plato can be your friend; he's an authority, but the truth is a greater friend. Uh, and it seems to me that an academic person, a scholarly person, wants the truth rather than friends, uh, if he's forced to choose between the two. And that, I think, is the is the 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 lesson of this book: Orthodoxy and Heresy. Truth is the greater friend. You can have the you know you can have the Ecumenical Councils on your side. You can have this long tradition. You can have you know, uh, a very impressive institutional ecclesial structure. But if you don't have the truth, what does all that matter? If what you say is false, what does that help you? Uh, Truth is the better friend. Um, And truth is unconnected to those things. And Christ himself says the truth will set you free. If there's anybody who stood on the edges and simply did not fit into the categories, you know, the established categories of his time, it was Christ. Um, You know, he, just this last Sunday at at church, the reading was from a passage in Luke's gospel where Uh, Christ goes to visit a chief Pharisee and, uh, you know, he immediately, he he barely is in this person's house uh, and he, you know, he chastises his host for not offering to clean his feet. And he, you know, when all these other people say, he says, when you guys go to a party, you shouldn't go and try to get the best seat for yourself. You should sit in the lowlier parts and get called up and so on. So look at what Jesus does. He's a nobody. He's just some guy from Nazareth. He's visiting a chief Pharisee's house. He lectures this guy in his own house. He calls all the other Pharisees to task for their inappropriate concerns and preoccupations. Jesus didn't care. He cared about the truth. He didn't care what your authority was. He didn't care where you stood in the ecclesial hierarchy, you know, what rung of the ladder you were on or anything like that. He didn't care about any of that. What mattered was the truth of God. Um... That is the most important thing for Jesus, and I think that's what should also be the most important thing for Christian theology as well. If you want to be a student of Christ, you should learn this first lesson, that the most important thing of all is the truth, the truth that comes from God, and not all these other things that people use as replacements for truth or as stand-ins for truth, like ecclesial authority and hierarchy and tradition and, you know, traditional pedigree and the rest.
0: Absolutely. Uh... Real, uh, real pleasure to talk to you, Dr. Nemesh. And uh, I think we can, you know, anyone listening will agree that the most important thing is the truth and that the truth matters. So thank you. Thank you for having me.